1939, the British government printed two and a half million posters. They printed the Keep Calm poster. And the Keep Calm poster was in response in 1939, Nazi Germany had signed a contract with Russia to divide the surrounding nations around them. And so Nazi Germany was looking at Great Britain and England particularly like a wolf or a dog looking at weak prey. And as they realized, the British government, that they were going to be subject to many air raids, they decided to design a poster. And you can't quite see that, but what I wanted was the original poster. But uh, the, what they designed was this poster that you now see in a number of popular venues. It's red, and it says, got the crown, a uh, Victorian crown over it, and it says, keep calm. And then it would say something under it, various posters, be of good courage, stay in line, watch your conduct. They didn't want people to, in the air raids or the blitzkrieg, which they would come to suffer under, to panic and to run away or to lose their heads. So they wanted to communicate with these two and a half million posters, keep calm. The posters were never posted. They would suffer air raids and they would suffer the, bl- the Blitzkrieg, but the posters left unput up. They, w- they never put the posters up. In fact, they didn't discover the posters had ever even been made until the year 2000 when a new bookstore owner in an old bookstore found a pile of these posters in the back and began to dig. And the question is, why didn't they post these posters in a people that they wanted to prepare for these life-changing air raids that would destroy London and other parts of England? And the response was, well, you know, the English are a very dignified people. We think it's rude to tell them to keep calm. That they will keep calm anyway. They will just tut tut. That's just a bomb landing on my flat. That we don't have to have a poster to tell them. Well, while we haven't designed these for church wide distribution, I would like to post this poster, this t shirt. I would like for you to imagine yourself this summer wearing this shirt which says, Keep calm and read a psalm, that the things that you face in this life, the air raids, the blitzkriegs, the sudden disappointments and heartaches, the challenges, the decisions, even the the wonderful glories that we behold and the, the vehicle to express our praise are all found in the psalms. And so we're taking this summer We're taking in our summer psalm mixtape, we've selected 15 psalms and we're looking at each one on Sunday morning through the summer. But also, we're inviting you as a congregation to 
keep calm and read a psalm with us each day as we send out of the office through the e-news we send to you and your um, email address a psalm. And we really want to encourage you to engage. We really want to encourage you to see the poster, to read the psalm, and experience the difference that it makes as the psalms are not only read, but they're savored, they're meditated upon, and then they become a very part of our thinking, our decision-making, our worship, our life. They become a light and a lamp and a guide. They become something that we've not only read with our eye, but we've hooked our heart into, and they transform us. That's the promise of the Psalms. Charles Spurgeon said, as we look at Psalm 22 this morning, that we may say of this psalm, Psalm 22, that there is none like it. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of His dying words, the lacrimatory of His last tears, the memorial of His expiring joys. If there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Now I had to look up what a lacrimatory is, but it's a clay, small tube uh, with a wide base. It looks like a flower, a small flower vase. But the lip of it was broad, and it was made for those mourning the loss of a loved one, that their tears could be collected into this lacrimatory. And there's an old fable that there were tears that were actually collected to represent the very tears of Christ. And when mixed with fine wine, the saints who would drink this lacry Christi wine would be refreshed in a way that they could not be refreshed when they faced life's trouble, loneliness, forsakenness, feeling abandoned. Now that's a fable. But Charles Spurgeon says about this psalm that we're looking at this morning that we can see the tears of Christ on the cross. We can experience Him as He expires. We can, ex- we can see the very life go out of Him. But for a saint, this is not a morbid study. For we don't simply see the founder of our faith dying, but we see him dying dying for us. We see him in the fight for us and fight for our life. We see him forsaken in his life. But we've come to learn in the gospel that that secures us that we would never be forsaken in our life with God. Tim Keller says this, this Psalm 22 is not describing illness or persecution, but rather an execution. Nothing like this ever happened to David, and the usual cries for justice are absent. It's as if there were a punishment that though not deserved, must be submitted to. Verse 1 we hear 
this cry from the psalmist who is writing this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And the word there for groaning is roaring. In his feeling of being forsaken, he's roaring, anybody out there, I'm abandoned. I'm alone. Many writers on this psalm struggle to find instances in David's life that exactly mimic everything that is spoken of here. Things such as verse 14, I'm poured out like water, my bones are out of joint. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. Verse 16, where it speaks of being surrounded and being pierced, hands and feet. Being able to count your bones because you're either so stretched out like on the rack or you're emaciated out of the loss of just bodily fluids, be it sweat or blood. They divide my garments among them. We don't find any instances in David's life where he experienced these things. So he's not writing about personal experience. He's writing prophetically about another one that will experience these things. But he's writing with some sense of understanding of what it's like to be forsaken. He can say, as it were, I know periods where I feel like I've been forsaken by God. For instance, with his son Absalom. His son Absalom displaced him as he usurped his authority as a king. So King David has to leave the palace and the dead of night, as it were, he's on the run and his son Absalom is even pursuing him to death. What of the promises of God? God, you promised to keep me on the throne. God, you promised to... to to provide for my family. You promised to meet my needs. You promised I'm the, the apple of your eye. Where are you, God? And yet, David can identify with our feeling forsaken, but he can't identify to the degree that the one that he writes about was truly forsaken. David would have times where he would feel forsaken because of God's silence. He would feel as if God is no longer present in his part of the world. But it was not true. But for the one that he writes about, he was truly, truly forsaken. He was absolutely forsaken, whereas David was only temporarily or by his feelings, had feelings of being forsaken. Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 teach us something. They teach us that on the cross in Matthew 27, Jesus Christ had Psalm 22 on his mind 
because his heart was hooked into it and it comes out of his mouth. When he felt forsaken, what emerged, he did not run from God, he did not abandon God, he did not curse God, but he recited portions of Psalm 22. In other words, he could be calm because of the Psalms. He could remain in this this extremis, physical extremis of his execution, even by the power of God's Word, which saturated him. Jesus Christ, we see in verse 18, where indeed, in Matthew 27, he was mindful at the at his feet when they divided his clothes. How distressing that must have been. Now, we're Western, Protestant, Presbyterians. And I doubt if any of us have ever seen a naked Jesus. Or naked, as we say in my part of the woods. Have you? I have not. It's rather delicate, but every image I've ever seen portraying Jesus on the cross, he's had at least a loincloth to cover up his privates. But what we understand to be true is that everything, everything was taken off of him. He was completely disrobed. And there, under the mocking gaze of all the bystanders and those that travel by, they shamed him. They pointed at him. They, they didn't just simply walk by and wag their heads. But they stopped and they stared and they pointed and they gloated. And all the while, the very covering that he had was being gambled away at his feet. He had this psalm on his mind. And this psalm, I believe, would give him encouragement to say, though I am completely stripped, yet God's Word is true. God's Word is faithful and true. We believe that Psalm 22 was on the mind of Christ on the cross. We see it again in verse 7 where they mock Him. Verse 8, when verse 8 We hear them quoted. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him, for He delights in Him. If you look back in verse 4 of Psalm 22, we hear the sentiment of this one that's being executed. He talks about deliverance. In his prayer to God, he says, In in you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. And then in verse 8, we hear the mockery of others because God is not delivering him. What is it? What is it? How do we resolve this dilemma? For you see, they were not mocking Christ falsely, but everything that they had been taught to understand was this, God will never forsake the righteous. God will always deliver His children that He treats like a father. God will always deliver them. So if God, your God, your Father is not delivering you, you're not one with Him. You are absolutely forsaken because you're not His. Verse 3, 
is the key. Yet you are holy. Now this is his prayer. Christ on the cross is crying out to the silence. And yet though he cries out and there is no response of deliverance, he knows that God is holy. God has never changed. Holy means unique. Or it means to be set apart, one of a kind. There is no God like His God. There is no king like His king. He has made promises of being steadfast in His love and ever faithful, and He's not changing those promises. And so even though it appears that He's not being delivered, in Christ's heart He knows that God is still holy. So that means to not be delivered in our affliction or not be delivered in our oppression, to not be delivered, that that doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. Something else is afoot. And we can ask, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? There are three men, and I could give you many more examples, who prayed during their time of feeling forsaken. For you see... In verse 19 through 21 of Psalm 22, the tone changes because he goes from describing his execution to praying. In verse 19, he says, Don't be far off. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver me in verse 20. Verse 21, he says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I looked up that word, wild oxen. I like cows and cattle. But this is a strange beast. In the ancient Bibles and in the original Hebrew, it says unicorn. Think about, you know, so if somebody asks you, you know, I love fairy tales. Are there unicorns in the Bible? You can say Psalm 22. But I think about that, that single horn, the unicorn. And he said, you've delivered me. And how is he delivering him? He's saying, I'm delivering on my promises, which I'm fulfilling in you, even on the cross. The great cosmic decision that was made, even before you came to earth, that you would die, that these people would never be forsaken. I'm delivering on that promise. And Christ said, that is good. You are delivering on that. You're not delivering me in order to deliver them. Three men, Job, Jonah, and Jesus, model this for us. Job says, now this is Job in sackcloth and ashes with boils. He's lost his children. He's lost his crops. He's lost his, his camels. He's lost his wealth. He lost his health. He's lost everything. It's an Everest of affliction compared to ours. What will he do? And he prays, I know that my Redeemer lives. I shall see God though my heart faints. Jonah in the belly of a whale, three days in the darkness, begins to pray. When my life was fainting away, I remembered 
That means to reflect, meditate the Lord. And I prayed. What did he meditate on? He meditated on the words, perhaps even the Psalms. God's words to him. God's holiness. Is God going to fail me because I fail God? Or is God not that way at all? God's not that way at all, he could say. Even though I fail God and I've run from Him, I'm remembering that. And what does He do? He prays. Jesus Christ on the cross, His last words next to it is finished, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. Do you see what's happening here? In a moment of feeling forsaken and afflicted, when we feel like God has abandoned us or God is not listening to us. These three, even Jesus, begin to reflect on God. They begin to reflect on what they've learned to be true. And it leads them to pray. And it doesn't stop there. It leads them on to worship. And perhaps worship is the point. Verse 27 says that the phenomena, verse 27 says, the phenomena is such that all the ends of the earth shall remember. They shall reflect on God. And when they begin to think about who God really is, so different from every other God, every other God will abandon you when you fail them. When you abandon God, every other God will definitely abandon you. But this God pursues us. He never forsakes us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Not even in your sin will I forsake you, God says. And what does that cause us to do? To turn, to repent. To not abandon this God and forsake Him. And then the final response is to worship Him that He did not forsake me, has not forsaken me, will not forsake me now, will never forsake me. And that brings out a heart to worship. C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters, which is one of my favorite, though there are many, with C.S. Lewis, has Screw Tape, the senior devil, talking to his nephew, Wormwood, about whom he might call the patient, a human. And this human has begun to pray and walk with Jesus. And he's begun to talk to Wormwood and he said, you know, what we've got to do is when he's feeling very, very low in what we call the trough, bombard him with all sorts of temptations. When he's feeling forsaken by God and that his prayers are not being heard, definitely not answered. When he feels like he reads God's Word and God is not speaking to him, when he feels like he's worshiping and it's just so flat, so plateaued, just a chore, just get through it, tempt him. Tempt him. Hit him hard. Hit him hard. Because do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, that is God, and ask why he has been forsaken and yet he's still 
obeys. You're at your most dangerous to your soul's enemy when feeling even as if you're forsaken. Perhaps because of my sin, God has finally turned me over. I always knew that He would. Maybe that's it. And there's no getting back. I would turn me over. And yet, God has said, when I turn to Him, He forgives. God tells me that He hears my prayers. He'll deliver me from these piercing unicorn horns. He is present with me, though I may not sense it. Even though I don't feel it, I'm going to worship Him. Even though I feel like I'm forsaken by God, I'm going to read His Word. I'm going to pray to Him. Even if I feel like my prayers are not going beyond the ceiling of this auditorium, you're dangerous when you do that. Why? Because the answer that this forsaken one gives us, there are at least three. There there are more than three. But this morning, I would just point out three answers to those of us who feel forsaken. Or feel like at times just numb. We don't sense the immediate presence of God. There are at least three things that this psalmist, I believe even Jesus the forsaken one, sings to us. And he says, this is my song, having experienced the forsakenness of God, and yet knowing that He still heard me. This is my song to all of you. This is my psalm to you. Number one, verse 24. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, He's not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Would you pray that prayer with me? Lord, you hear me when I cry to you, even though I may not feel that you hear me. You do. God's word says it. Believe it. Christ did. He cried out. As I told you, verse 1, where he says, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? That's not a casual tone of conversation. It's a roar. It says in Matthew 27, they heard him from the cross. All the spectators heard him cry out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who has never known anything but the loving presence of God now does not feel it or sense it, and yet he would tell you, He hears me when I cry. He doesn't change my circumstances because he's delivering and he's up to something grander in my affliction and my pain. It is going to elicit out of me worship and a testimony. It's going to allow me to answer others who are forsaken. Know this, God feels your affliction though we may not feel His presence. Let me put it to you differently. You have faith in God. You've never seen God. But there are points in our life where He is so close and so thick as as if you could reach out and touch Him. He speaks to us sometimes during our everyday worship. It's so clear that we almost have to say, Stop! Stop! I'm overwhelmed with what the flood that you're speaking to me. 
There are times that we feel like our prayers are so connecting with the ear of God that we don't stop. We just continue while we've got His ear. But if you don't feel that, it doesn't invalidate faith in that. Your faith and trust and confidence in God hearing you and promising to deliver you and answer you is not not negated by your sense and your feeling that He is far from you. Does that make sense? If you feel like He is not near you, that, doesn't, that shouldn't do anything to your faith. That's normal. You're not insane. You're not a crazy Christian. We all feel that. We go by sometimes in dry periods where we just go by weeks and weeks and we have our everyday worship and we come and we read in the Psalms and it's like, Lord, boy, it's almost like I'm mocked by other people that say, oh man, how's your quiet time? Oh man, I'm just so overwhelmed. Well, I'm, getting a bu- I'm either getting a busy signal or just a dial tone. We don't have dial tones anymore, I guess. But they, you know, I'm just, I'm not connecting. It doesn't mean that you're not connecting. Verse 24, he has heard when we cry out to him. He hears. Don't let your feelings that he's not present cause you to stop and go to other things. That's what makes you very safe to the devil. What makes you dangerous is you keep on keeping on. And those things are being stored up. And then God comes back. Maybe He's withdrawn just to see how strong is your faith. Or has it all got to be feelings with you? Number two, verse 25. Every affliction may be used to comfort the afflicted. He says here, My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. What he's saying is, I'm afflicted right now and I feel forsaken and I feel low and I feel very far from God. But I have have hooked my heart into God. I believe in Him. I don't understand His ways. I don't understand everything that He's doing. But I'm hanging on. And I'm hanging on. And one day, here comes the vow. One day, when I'm on the other side of this, I'm I'm going to share it with others. I'm going to serve others. In this case, it may very well have been actual food and drink. A feast. I'm going to throw a feast on the other side of this. When this prayer is answered, or when God comes near again, I'm going to invite everybody to come, and they're going to eat until they're satisfied. They're going to eat until they're full. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. God who comforts us in our affliction so that we may all be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I've said this before, Two Rivers. There are hands out there that only your hand is shaped to hold. There are those of you that are going through such deep waters and are feeling so far away from God that in your return, you are called by God now that you are comforted out of your affliction to turn and comfort one another's. And that one another, that is difficult in a Western individualistic society. 
because many times it becomes all about me. But what if the affliction, what if the loneliness of heart with God, what if feeling far away, what if God feeling not very near to you, even to the point that you say, it feels like I'm just forsaken right now, all so quiet. What if this is a time that God is taking you through for another person? So that you can now look at your affliction and say, this is but a tool in the Redeemer's hand that I might can serve my brethren out of this. You feel like there's an area in your life that you're dying. Make a vow that on the other side, Lord, with my deliverance, I will turn and minister to those that feel like they are similarly dying. And then verse 27. Verse 27 All the earth shall remember, turn, and then worship, for kingship belongs to the Lord. We are called to do that very thing. We're called to be a people who, just like Jesus Christ, He remembered, which means to reflect and meditate. We're to remember Psalm 22. It's the gospel. We're to remember and see the tears, hear the cry, see the moaning, watch his execution, and realize that one was forsaken such that all who believe will never be forsaken. That he would sense and feel momentarily forsaken by God that we for all eternity will never be forsaken by God. And when we remember, we'll turn from our feelings of forsaken and saying, how could you forsake me when you did that for me? If the price of me never being forsaken is your only son being forsaken, then you'll never forsake me. You'll never forsake me. Not only you can't, but you want. You do not will it. You've paid the ultimate price that we would never be forsaken. And that prompts our heart to well and worship. I've got to end, but I, I can't end without telling you a quick story. It's actually just a synopsis of a sermon that Christmas Evans gave in 1788 and he called it the heart of the morning and heart is h-a-r-t meaning dear did you happen to notice at the heading of psalm 22 where it says to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn a psalm of david to the doe of the dawn what is he talking about Christmas Evans, in preaching on this text, said this, From the moment that Jesus Christ was born, like a heart or a deer, hunted by the hunt hunter, Herod pursued this little doe. Herod and all of the enemies of Christ pursued him and they tempted him in the wilderness and they pursued him and ever, ever this deer was going higher and higher into the crags of the mountain, ultimately to Mount Calvary, to Golgotha. 
And there in those rocky crags, the dogs surrounded him. They would bite him. They would tear his flesh. They would slay him. They have him cornered. And then they kill the doe. And they leave, thinking that they have had a successful hunt. But Christmas Evans posed it as a question. Were they not aware? Were they not aware that they hunted a very unique deer? He's the deer of the morning. And with the morning came his rising. This morning, we come to the table once again. And this broken bread represents broken flesh. And this cup represents poured out blood. It represents an execution. But Christ, who is real and present, says, these are things to cause you to remember the price that I would pay that you should never be forsaken. But it's also a feast it's a vow that I made. It's a feast that I want to celebrate with you that, you will, that I paid the price and that it's accomplished and that you will never be forsaken and that you will eat and be with me forever. And so Christ comes to us and even by this, He sings a song of the forsaken to those of us that feel forsaken so that when we take this bread and we take this cup, we can say, I am not forsaken. I am one. I am in unity with Him. For this doe, this deer, has risen and is alive and is with us even today to speak to our heart's fear. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I'm going to pray as our men come forward to serve us. Heavenly Father, I ask that You would take this bread and this cup and that You would set it apart for a use that is holy and mysterious, that we would take this bread, and in taking this bread, we would remember. And we would reflect on Christ being forsaken in our place. And then we would take, and as we drink this wine, we would not drink to forget, but Father, we would drink even as we turn again to You and raise our glass in glad worship that You are the Lord. And you are our Lord, now and forever, and you are ever with us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.